really believe that the flip side of anxiety is hope. It's not despair because when we're despairing, we've given up. But when we're anxious, we're still in it to win it. When we learn to work with it, when we learn to channel it, when our interpretation of it allows us to feel like it's actually a normal part of being human. It's the messy work of being human and we can build skills to learn to be anxious and cope in the right way. Welcome to Hope Starts With Us a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. My name is Daniel H. Gillison Jr. I'm the CEO of NAMI and I'm your host for this podcast. We started this podcast because we believe that hope starts with us. And there's five reasons. Hope starts with us talking about mental health. Hope starts with us making information accessible. Hope starts with us providing resources and practical advice. Hope starts with us sharing our stories. And last, hope starts with us breaking the stigma. If you are a loved one, is struggling with a mental health condition and have been looking for hope, we made this podcast for you. Hope starts with all of us. Hope is a collective. We hope that each episode with each conversation brings you into that collective to know you are not alone. Today, I'm joined by clinical psychologist, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari, who wrote the book, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. She is also the founder and CSO of Arcade Therapeutics, as well as a professor of psychology and neuroscience, director of the Emotion Regulation Lab, and co-executive director of the Center for Health Technology at Hunter College. As April is National Stress Awareness Month, we'll be talking today about stress and anxiety and even reframe our thinking about it to minimize negative impacts. So let's talk for a second about good versus bad stress. What many people don't realize is that there is both good and bad stress. Good stress, what psychologists call eustress, can actually help motivate us to overcome challenges. For example, Have you ever felt nervous before giving a big test or competing in a uh, a race or something similar? And not only before giving a big test, but before taking a big test. The stress and anxiety you feel beforehand can actually help motivate you to study and train more. The increased blood pressure and adrenaline your body produces can actually help you focus more clearly and perform better. But when stress is chronic and unmanageable, Stress can have negative impacts on our bodies and minds over time. For example, being in an environment where you are constantly put down or told your work is never good enough, or in situations of abuse, or experiencing what many researchers have deemed adverse childhood experiences can lead to toxic stress that can have long-term damaging effects on learning, behavior, and health over time. When your body is constantly on high alert, but there is no way to overcome the obstacle, you can begin struggling with your sleep, experiencing depression and burnout, gaining weight, and dealing with a great deal of health issues. Stress can also be cumulative. The small stressors we encounter throughout the day, like being stuck in traffic, can actually add up over time and begin to take a toll on us if we are not careful to intentionally manage those small stressors. Stress can also turn into good or bad stress depending on how we actively choose to interpret it. I'm going to repeat that line. Stress can also turn into good or bad stress, depending on how we actively choose to interpret it. 
Tracy, you've done a lot of research and speaking about this topic in particular relation to anxiety. In fact, uh, you even have a book about it as well. Can you talk to us more about how we can use anxiety and stress for our good? Is there a difference between the two? Thanks so much, Dan. And I love that introduction because so much of what you said about stress um, really helps us think about anxiety. And, you know, I think uh, that that phrase you were emphasizing at the end there about interpretation is really important to um, part of what I think we need to talk about when we talk about anxiety. So like good and bad stress, there's good and bad anxiety in the sense that the emotion of anxiety is good. It's an anxiety disorder when we're really struggling with coping with those feelings of anxiety that become bad. And that's even the, the distinction that we make as clinical psychologists when we diagnose anxiety disorders. You can have frequent and kind of intense anxiety almost every day, but it's only when the way that we cope with those feelings cause what we call functional impairment. That is, this, this way that we're coping is getting in the way of living and loving and being productive and having joy. That's when a diagnosis is given. And so really one of the biggest things I, I'd love, love people to consider when it comes to the emotion of, of anxiety is that we evolved to have it. It's an emotion that none of us will ever escape. It's the inevitable, right? Um, and, and here's where um, de defining anxiety might be helpful here because anxiety is not the same as fear. And it's not the same as stress. And we often sort of, you know, conflate all three of those words because they feel similar. But anxiety is the emotion that we evolve to have when we're facing the uncertain future. So that means that when we're anxious, and we can all attest to this feeling like, you know, you talked about test anxiety and test stress. And when we're anxious, we're looking into this uncertain future. And we know that something bad could happen. We could fail that test. But anxiety is also telling us that there's still hope that we could work hard and make the positive outcome into reality. So anxiety inhabits that space between where we are now and where we want to be. And it evolved to show up to give us that information and to then prepare us to take productive action to avert disaster and make our dreams come true. So, so I, I, I say this uh, sometimes and it sort of makes people do a double take, but I really believe that the flip side of anxiety is hope. It's not despair because when we're despairing, we've given up. But when we're anxious, we're still in it to win it. When we learn to work with it, when we learn to channel it, when our interpretation of it allows us to feel like it's actually a normal part of being human. It's the messy work of being human. And we can build skills to learn to be anxious and cope in the right way. Wow, that, that is so powerful. And thank you. This is, this is just building on a wonderful conversation we're going to have. Uh, our, our world continues to become increasingly complex. And the last few years have been especially stressful for many, something that has become more incredibly helpful, but also somewhat harmful for people in our modern world is technology. In one sense, because we have this 24-7 access to email, work, social media, news, communications, there is a sense of constant pressure, endless comparisons and competition, and frequent notifications that can cause stress and anxiety in ways that we really did not have to worry about before. In another sense, we've been able to harness technology to actually make advancements for how we can access tools and resources to cope with stress and anxiety. 
Tracy, you have done this with your work through Arcade Therapeutics that actually create games people can play on their phones that can help them manage anxiety. Can you speak more about, and would you speak more about how technology can and has brought both challenges and advancements for people in dealing with stress and anxiety? This is a question we're all wrestling with because digital technology is the infrastructure of our lives today. And as a parent, I know a lot of us parents are very worried. My view is very, you know, is very much what you were alluding to uh, when you talked about digital citizenship, this idea that whether it's our digital lives or helping our kids navigate theirs, we can we can blame technology for things. And I think there are some things we can blame technology for. But one of the key things is that anxiety, that technology is an amplifier of whatever we bring to the table. And it's not so much how much screen time we're spending, although clearly that's an opportunity cost if we're too much on screens, right? We're not doing other healthy things. But it's not just how much we're on, but what we're doing when we're on screens. And so when we think about making wise choices around technology use, we can do a sort of mental checklist. You know, how am I, how is my time on screens? Is it taking away from things I want to do in the real world or health choices that I want to be making? What needs am I getting met through technology? Am I going there because I'm lonely? Well, often when we use social media, we feel a lot worse after we've gotten off. I don't know about you, but I know kids today too, they feel very drawn to using it. It's how they grew up. But often when they come off of it, they're not feeling better or more inspired or more hopeful. So there's so we can teach our kids to really and ourselves to ask the question, what are we getting from technology and what is it taking from us? And if we're seeking out connection, if we're seeking out um, not feeling so lonely or learning or whatever it is, how do we divide our time in meeting those goals between screens and the real world? Because the fact is that there's only some kinds of social connection that are really good on screens. It's, you know, it's great ways to, you know, get more information, learn something new, bridge our contacts, but that's not where we go for really deep connection. It's just not going to happen. That's not what it's good for. In my work with um, Arcade Therapeutics, we develop clinically validated games for mental health. Um, So we actually embed uh, clinical treatments for things like anxiety disorders, depression, and, uh, and substance use disorders in a game. Now, we're really committed, though, to not causing more screen time. You know, we don't want to add to the screen burden, but we also want to optimize digital for what it's good for, which is to lower access, um, lower barriers to access, rather, to engage people, um, to give them hope. Because sometimes, you know, especially when we play games, if it's on the screen, if it's a game, all of a sudden stigma has been reduced. And we start to think about these tools as things that, you know, it's not that we're broken, it's that we're building new skills. So at Arcade, we're really excited about um, using this great science on techniques like uh, cognitive bias modification, which is sort of in this cognitive behavioral therapy umbrella, but really retrains our brain to, to, uh, to gain more flexibility in our habits of thinking. Habits like when we're anxious, we pay too much attention to threat. So if I'm giving a speech and I'm a socially anxious person, you know that when I look out into that audience, I'm gonna see a hundred people in front of me, but I will have a spotlight and on one guy in the back falling asleep or frowning or, right? And these are habits that drive the vicious cycle of anxiety. It's called the threat bias. What we do at Arcade Therapeutics is we create these techniques, embed them in games that help us rewire that habit, gain more flexibility. And all of a sudden we're able to notice more flexibly, oh, there are 99 people smiling at me. 
and really excited about the speech I'm giving in front of this audience today. So these are the kinds of these kinds of nudge interventions that actually show clinical evidence of reducing anxiety severity alone and also boosting the effectiveness of other kinds of techniques. So I think when we think about screens, we have to think, what are they good for? Are they good for deep social connection or for bridging social connection? Are they good for hours and hours of therapy? Sometimes they are, but maybe they're also good for these brief interventions that keep people on and off and give them really key healing, uh, you know, healing interventions that can help them in the moment. You know, um, Doc, what, you, what you're sharing is, is, is so incredible. And we're not going to go backwards uh, from the standpoint, stepping away from technology. And uh, yeah. our lives are uh, digital. And you mentioned using technology as an amplifier. We see a lot of young people now that there's another word I want to use called trust. They trust technology before they trust humans from the standpoint of they will trust something they will get from their device before they will trust that same information from a person. It's almost like because many of them uh, have grown up with technology. Um, um, it, it, recently at a, at a grocery store, I was at a grocery store and I saw two examples of this. I saw a father who's, who's a, a youngster was um, really distressed because he was using his phone and she wanted his phone. And this was a little toddler, uh, no more than maybe three or four. And as soon as he finished with whatever his text was, he handed the phone to her and she started playing a game and he could then go into the grocery store and do his shopping. I saw another example of a parent that had a um, almost like a, I, I don't know, a, a large type of a device that had a screen. And as he put his, uh, as she put her, 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 her child in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, like the car shopping the stroller. cart, yeah, yeah, yeah. she hands her this device and she's, she's totally focused. The little one is totally focused on her game, what she's playing yeah. there. Yeah. And you can see that both of these parents, two different parents, two different situations were using the tools uh, for, you know, uh, other reasons, but we know technology is the amplifier and it, we do want to work on helping people to understand how to use it. How do we help us adults, parents navigate what is and what isn't, what needs to be and what can be from the standpoint of embracing technology? Yeah. I mean, it's really about these choices we make every day and it's about the family cultures that we create. So those two examples are such interesting examples because we see them all the time. We almost, the fact you even notice them, it's like really, right? Because you're, you're paying attention. And you know, when my, my kids are 14 and 11 and I was sort of at this cusp where this technology emerged just before I kind of had my kids, right? I, I sort of had time to figure out what I wanted to do about it. And we made a decision really early on that, you know, we're not going to be screen free. You know, like there has to be, you know, we're going to allow some screens, but we're going to be very aware of what we're using the screens for. So if we're handing our kids screens all the time, now, listen, I've had handed my kid a screen before, God knows, <laughs> like, you know, a long, long plane flight, whatever, you know, sometimes you do it. But if every single time a kid is uncomfortable, is bored, uh, makes noise, if what we do is give them the screen, we're teaching a very specific habit that will take hold that when that young person becomes a middle schooler and a high schooler and an adult, anytime they feel discomfort or boredom, they're going to reach for that screen. 
And these these screens are giant escape machines. We can escape war, you know, the, whatever's going on in the moment, we can escape our feelings. And so if we're amplifying uh, as a way to cope this one solution at the expense of others, I think that's where the problem comes in. So we mm. have to think, where's our balance? You know, again, I don't want to parent shame. I don't want to be all or none. So it's really about, okay, this one Girl Streak store uh, visit, I'm going to give my kid that screen. <laughs> but then you say, you know what, next time I'm going to hand them a, to- a toy, a more creative toy to play with so that they're not being just passive, they can be active. And that's uh, the other thing we look for on screens. Are we being active creators or passive uh, consumers? And one thing that I get very concerned about that we don't talk enough about with screens and social media is we are training our children to be massive consumers. We are training yeah. them. And that's what these tech companies want, I have to say. And they're not well-intentioned about it. They're not out there for our well-being. And they're businesses. So, But we have to have our eyes completely open and know that our kids are being trained to consume and to click and to buy and to be on hours and hours because that's their business model. So if we can disrupt that and give our kids knowledge to make more choices about how they're using screens and when they're on and off it, I think that's a really important first step. You know, this is wonderful. And and, and I'm not into the parent shaming uh, as well. I brought up those two uh, examples uh, be, because of uh, even without uh, we have a what we call a next gen group. Uh, these are young adults that are working with us, and um, uh, uh, they they I, I got a chance to meet with them not too long ago. And what was interesting is they were very nervous to meet with the CEO. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I showed them uh, something that we had with technology, they embraced it and they were on the edge of their seat and and they 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 loosened up. I want to come back to something you said that helps all of us, which is cognitive behavioral therapy and our habits of thinking. And you talked about threat bias and you use the example of someone who gets anxious in doing public speaking. That was such a wonderful example. And, I, and, and, and if you have some other thoughts on that uh, as we as we as we uh, talk, because the other thing is, how do we get the message out to more people about how technology can help help them with their habits of thinking. Mm-hmm. That is something that we need more people to know the, the the upside, the positive, the engagement of how it can help them uh, improve their level of comfort in those anxious moments. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, 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 I'm real excited. So for me, for someone who, uh, who is listening and might be feeling particularly stressed out or anxious today, my first day back after a after some significant travel, do you have any practical insight or words of wisdom for what I or anyone else that does quite a bit of traveling can do to help cope with those uh, with those feelings in a healthy way? Mm, that's such a great question. So the thing about anxiety and stress, as you were talking about in the very beginning, is you know our our uh, perspective on it shapes you know our, uh, shapes how we respond because our mindset is what we perceive and believe about this experience, right? And the direct result is what we do. So our mindset, the dominant mindset about the emotions that feel uncomfortable, like anxiety, is that it's either, uh, that I call the mindset sort of, there are two of them really. One is that there's a disease mindset and there's a character flaw mindset. And the disease mindset, real briefly, is just this idea that if we feel anxious, we're broken. If we feel anxious, it's a failure of mental health. Right. And so what we do when we feel that way is we start to lose confidence and hope in our ability to cope. So I think this disease mindset 
even though there really are anxiety disorders that need help and treatment, is actually setting us up to do a very destructive thing when it comes to anxiety and coping, which is to engage. That is, when we fear anxiety, we start to avoid it. And we do the same thing with the character flaw mindset when we feel it's a weakness, that it's a failure of our strength of character. We should just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We start to avoid all experiences of anxiety. And what does that do? First of all, anything we suppress makes it stronger. And it's an opportunity cost. You can't learn to cope with something you never allow yourself to experience. And so for me, as I think about tips for either it's travel anxiety or whatever kind of anxiety, if we start with the idea that anxiety is a normal struggle and a normal emotion, then we have three L's that we need to go through. <laughs> These are my little, my little mnemonic tips. The three L's stand for listen, leverage, and let go. Now, the listen part is important because when we're anxious, say it's about traveling, say it's about um, you know something else that's coming up in our life. Yes, sometimes it can be, quote unquote, irrational, or maybe it's not helpful. But often when we listen to anxiety, we find out there's something it's telling us. So for me, I wake up a lot um, when there's a lot on my head or there's stresses at work. I wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. I'm in bed, right? I think I'll, it's not an uncommon experience and happens like clockwork for me when there's just too much going on. And at those moments, I could sweep those feelings under the rug. But when I choose to listen to anxiety, what I do is I, I, I calm down. Maybe I breathe. Maybe I do, you know, some people meditate. You take a moment, you take a breath and allow that space. And pretty soon, 95% of the time, I discover that there's something really important that I've dropped the ball on. So for example, the other week, I had a lot of work stress going on and I just paused and listened at 4 a.m. in bed <laughs> and I realized, oh gosh, there was something I left undone at work that's really negatively affecting everything else right now. And I thought I could just forget about it. I thought I could get past it. I need to take responsibility and deal with this. And the minute I listened to that knowledge, that, that wisdom really that was coming from that uncomfortable feeling, my anxiety started going down. And then I realized, oh, I need to actually make a plan. I need to do something. And that's where leveraging comes in, the second L. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, the minute I'm, I'm not going to do it now. I need a little more sleep. But I'm going to, when I get up, I'm going to send this email. I'm going to have this conversation. You know, I just made this like rough plan about what I would do when I woke up. And then when I made that plan, my anxiety went down even further because that told me I was on the right track. Because now I'm not treating anxiety as a destructive danger, but as actually information because that's what emotions are. And then, and only then, after I tried to listen, I leveraged it a bit, I, I used it for purpose, for action, for planning, then I let go. And then I said, okay, I need to get back. I need a couple more hours of sleep. So I did my breathing techniques. I love the four, seven, eight technique where you breathe in for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. It's a great biological calmer. Um, and I was able to get back to sleep. And so that's just a small little example of how when we, when we experience anxiety, it's coming on deck for us. We if we can create a little space between having the emotion and reacting to it, we can start to actually build these coping skills, listen, leverage, and then let go you know, and, and with practice, it's not going to work great the first time, maybe, but we will get better with practice because the anxiety, like all emotions, is, is, these emotion regulation skills, we can build them. Even when we take steps back, we can keep building these skills and get better and better every single time. You know, um, Doc, this is this is incredible. And um, I, I have another I have so many questions I want to ask you because, you know, in in, in 
in my role and as, as well as my colleagues and peers, there's always something to to be anxious about and it's it's how we manage it but it we we need we need tools as well so um i want to ask you because you you are just incredible in terms of all the roles that you have and and i want to know what do you do personally to manage your anxiety and stress levels as someone who has clearly has a tremendous amount to balance and you do it quite well but between your role at arcade therapeutics as an author as a researcher as a professor as a public speaker, oh, Lord. and as a mom and a wife, <laughs> how in the heck do you manage uh, anxiety and stress? Well, Dan, I don't always manage it every day. So that's one thing I do want to say, that, that mental health is not some destination where it's like everything's perfect. It is messy, right? It's, the str- it's not the absence of struggle. It is the struggle. So I want to start by saying that, mm-hmm. that you know, that's one thing. And, I, and even telling myself that helps me helps me in coping because I forgive myself. I'm less hard on myself and all of the horizons, the possibilities that are there for me, I think they open up more when I don't shut myself down. So that's, that's number one. Um, Number two is, you know, I think all of us, um, you know, and we can think back to the, the height of the pandemic when we were in lockdown and when life, like it was just, there were really bad things that were happening to people. And I do want to say that as we talk about, you know, mindset or interpretations, you know, I really want to pay respect and heed to the fact that that life is really hard for many people a lot of the time. And there are things out of our control. And at the same time, there there are things we can do. And a big part of that, of keeping that hope that you started this whole conversation with, which I was so grateful that you started that way, is to know that when we tune into our difficult feelings and our emotions. We listen, leverage, and let go, because that is the first thing I do every single time, is, you know, we realize that, you know, we can gain wisdom about what we can't control. Like in the pandemic, we couldn't control there was a global pandemic. It was happening. Many of us had terrible loss, terrible challenges. But when we actually listen to anxiety, which is sending us into the future where there's still possibility of hope, we can often find something that we can do. Many of us connected more with family and loved ones when, you know, in whatever ways we were able to. Many of us made changes in our life that were overdue because we realized that we are sort of our joy to crap ratio. Forgive me for using that word, but that ratio was out of balance and we needed to make some new choices. But yeah. so the first, so that's really important. And, and then I th- and then I think having daily routines that don't take a lot of time, but that set you off on your day. Like I start every day, even days I don't have time even with a 30 second intention or a 30 second wellness mm-hmm. practice that for me just reminds me to keep oriented to making good choices for myself. That's, that's something I start each day for, uh, start each day with. And, and then I'll add with one last thing. And there's, there's, there are literally three acronyms, uh, two acronyms, forgive me for using them, but it helps me remember the, I, I do, I, I start each day when things are rough in my life with halt and with the three Ps. So HALT, of course, comes out of the 12-step world. And it's just a reminder that when we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, when our physical and social selves are all out of balance, everything is harder. So sometimes before we can really take on huge challenges, we need more sleep. We need to think about our diet if we, you know, in whatever way that we can. We need to, you know, connect with people around us. So, So I think when we know that mental health is health, and we don't separate separate out body and mind. That helps us think of more solutions. So I do that when I'm when I'm struggling. And then the second thing is the three P's. 
And that we have the three L's, we have halt, and we have the three P's. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but the three P's. This is good. <laughs> the three P's are tuning in to where you are with people, perspective, and purpose. And so people for me is number one, because our social connection, both what we receive and what we give back, is one of the greatest ways to start breaking through hopelessness and despair. Because people are, you know, we evolved to be, live in tribes and to draw on our community. And really, that's one of the greatest ways to cope with, you know, you know, real, you know, struggles with anxiety, depression, all of the struggles. So I tune in. Am I, am I, am I connected with people I love? Am I receiving love? Am I giving love back? Because when we give back, you know, a lot of people have talked about, yes, there's a self-help section in the bookstore. Why isn't there a help others section? Because when we give to others and to community, all of a sudden, our sense of ourself expands new possibilities arise. We feel better. We feel less stuck. So giving back is just as good as receiving. So I check in with my first P, people. Perspective is all about mindset, as we've been talking about. So I really think through, how am I viewing my world? Am I am I stuck in a negativity loop? Am I judging someone that actually might be an ally to me instead of an enemy? Like I think about my perspective in all sorts of domains, and I do my best to, to stand on solid ground there. And then the third P is purpose. I think that when, and, and I think this is with our work lives, our family lives, are we doing things that connect us with a greater sense of ourself, with a mm. sense of expansiveness? Now, it doesn't mean it has to be some grand plan or mission. It can just be saying, you know, tonight I'm going to really make some time and try to cook the most healthy meal I can for my family. Because, you know, it's been a rough couple of weeks and we've been ordering out a lot of pizza. And that's okay too, right? But but tonight I'm going to really focus on that delicious dinner, that healthy, healthy dinner. Or, you know, I had that disagreement with my loved one. I'm going to make it right today. That's my purpose today. Or I could be trying to change global mental health. Like whatever that is, you know, we can tune into it every day and it just expands us and makes us the best version of ourselves. This is, it absolutely is fantastic. So I want to go to a few things that you mentioned uh, uh, is um, uh, I tune in uh, and I, I missed the third of the halt. Hungry, angry, tired. Uh, lonely, tired. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. tired. Yeah, because so, the, um, the addiction uh, 12 step, that's important to do those check-ins, but for all mental health. because Yes, yeah. yes. And then the three Ps, people, perspective, and purpose, connecting with a greater sense of ourselves and those around us and giving back, giving to others. The other thing was, I want to come back to the three L's, listen, leverage, let go. And when you were talking about the example of waking up at four in the morning, you listened um, and you said, okay, I got to make a plan. And then you made a, you, you said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to sleep. But when I get up, I know what I have to do. I have to put a plan together. And then once I put that plan together, I have to take action on that. So it, it actually, kind of, it, it, it changed your mindset. And then you let go. So listen, leverage, let go. And I, I've, I've just got a page of notes. And <laughs> you mentioned the disease mindset versus a character flaw mindset. There's so much wisdom in what you've shared here. The world can be a difficult place. And sometimes it can be hard to hold on to hope. That's why each week uh, we dedicate the last couple of minutes of our podcast to a special edition called Hold On To Hope. Um, Tracy, can you tell us what helps you hold on to hope? I think for me, it's uh, it's really uh, connecting with my family and my loved ones, kind of back to the P part of it, because when I do that, 
my troubles, my travails, my, you know, I'm very blessed to have loved ones that I'm, you know, in my life. And I know that blessing very much so because so many people are lonely today. It's really a crisis for so many of us. So even just connecting with that, it helps give me perspective on all my, my challenges. And even when we have blessings, even when we have privilege, people still have challenges. So I would really like encourage people sometimes like, oh, no, I'm lucky. So I shouldn't be like, I, I can't even talk about my challenges. No, it's okay to lean into the fact you have challenges. But 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 for me, knowing that I have an anchor of love uh, in my life to face that makes a big difference. And then I think the second thing for me just is a personality trait, because when I was growing up, I struggled with depression. I think what what happens in depression is we shut down our, our hope and possibilities, right? And so for me, as I think about the things I do in my daily life, I try to make sure that every day I'm doing, even if it's a small, tiny thing, I do something that's part of my greater mission in life. And for me, my mm. mission is to, you know, I've been a mental health professional for a long time now, over 20 years. And I feel that the conversations we're having about mental health, it's so great we're having more conversations, but I think we're not taking a strengths-based approach enough. Sometimes we talk so much about our vulnerability, we forget to talk about our strength. And so my mission really as a, as a psychologist, as a, as a human, is to try to have more of those conversations about our strengths and how to find resilience and how to build resilience. And so every day I try to just make sure I'm doing something that plugs into that sense of purpose to me. And it just makes everything feel better every single time. It just makes me look past to the myopia of like that thing that's bothering me now and to take a deep breath and maybe go to bed early, <laughs> maybe wake up and press the reset button. But that to me is always a, a really helpful thing. So I, um, I uh, before we wrap, I just want to come back to, I'm not sure if I'm coming back to the author, the professor, or, uh, you know, because your portfolio is so vast, uh, your body of work speaks to itself. Uh, and I want to ask you, you mentioned this word resilience. Is there anything you'd like the audience to know? We, we started with hope. You mentioned resilience. And whenever I'm with a professor, I always want to learn from the professor. So, and, and also an author. So, what, what what could you share with our audience about what you just mentioned about resilience? Because it sounds like, and you mentioned, uh, Dan, I've been doing this work in the, in the mental health space for 20 years, and I'd like to see us take a, a strength-based approach. So I heard that and I heard resilience. So uh, professor or doctor, uh, how, how can you help our, our listeners and our viewers with that? Thank you, Dan. And I just want to say, too, thank you for all your kind words. It's been really a joy speaking with you. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, so for me, uh, and, and you know, when I became a psychologist, I was really inspired by the resilience of children. Um, I'd been actually a classical musician <laughs> but I, in college, but I was, I was volunteering in a research lab where child maltreatment was being studied. It was the Mountain Hope Family Center. Um, researchers like Dante Cicchetti and others had been doing this amazing work. And I had, I had really the good fortune to work with these kids that we were trying to understand the impact of maltreatment on them. And I knew this, the real suffering they had endured, um, you know, the terrible abuse. At the same time, what inspired me and what made me want to become a psychologist is I saw their, their, their incredible resilience. They were beautiful, creative, amazing children, despite the incredible suffering they'd gone through. And that I woke up in the morning thinking, that's what I want to understand. That's what I want to really focus on. And, and so when I say resilience, 
I do mean this ability to bounce back from adversity, but I also mean something, and this gets to the strengths-based approach too, that we forget, which is that, you know, we're not just resilient. We're also what's called anti-fragile. It's this term that Nassim Nicholas Taleb coined. He wrote a book called Anti-Fragility or Anti-Fragile. It's really this idea that we don't just bounce back from adversity, but sometimes we can grow stronger. And he talked mm. about everything from businesses to economics to, you know, all these things are anti-fragile. The human body is anti-fragile, the immune system. If you don't throw germs at it, it can't learn to mount an immune response, right? But our emotions and our, and our mental lives are also anti-fragile. That is, I think when we think about resilience and when we have these conversations, we have to remember that we can go through hard things. Our kids can as well. We shouldn't just try to protect them from everything, we should prepare them for the inevitable ups and downs that life will throw their way. And it will not break us. We can grow stronger with support, with community, with build, with more knowledge and conversations about building mental health skills. Just like fitness, we can build mental fitness and emotional fitness, but sometimes we have to go through that, that messy, messy work of being human and that messy work of building a, a, a positive mental health state. So I guess what I want to say is we're not just resilient. We don't just survive. We thrive when we face adversity. And we really can. And, and we just need to provide every person with the community, the support, the tools that they need to be anti-fragile and to grow stronger from those experiences. Wow. This is this is incredible. Thank you so very much. Um, and, and in terms of any closing thoughts that I may have for our audience. I, I want to say, uh, first of all, um, uh, Doc, this has been incredible to talk with you and, and to, to really learn from you. And um, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari uh, is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and the director of the Emotion Regulation Lab and the co-executive director of the Center for Health Technology at Hunter College uh, and, and, and is doing so much more as a founder and CSO of Arcade Therapeutics as well. So uh, to, to say that her life is busy and that she is uh, uh, being able to do so much for so many is, is an understatement. So um, really appreciate you being with us today. This has been Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If you're looking for mental health resources, you are not alone. To connect with the NAMI helpline and find local resources, visit nami.org forward slash help or text helpline to 62640 or dial 800-950-NAMI-6264. Or if you are experiencing an immediate suicide, substance use, or mental health crisis, please call or text 988 to speak with a trained support specialist or visit 988lifeline.org.